Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. The new coronavirus, COVID-19, is sweeping through the world's population, exposing capitalism for disastrous weaknesses in healthcare systems, social infrastructure and the global economy. Capitalist politicians and the capitalist state are torn between protecting public health and defending private profit. The official number of cases in the UK as of 12th March 2020 is 590. But the British government's chief scientific advisor has said the real number could be up to 10,000. The local elections planned for May have been postponed. Hospitals are facing overload. Workers are facing lost pay. The economy was already heading toward recession. But workers have also fought back with demands and with strike action to force a response in the interest of the majority. Why did capitalism get us here? What action can workers take to improve things? And how could socialist change resolve the underlying problems? This episode of Socialism looks at the coronavirus, the socialist response. Hello, I'm Sarah Sachs-Aldridge. I'm the Socialist Party National Organiser. Today in this podcast, I'm turning the tables on James Ivans, (laughs) who normally does the interviewing on these socialist podcasts. Hi, James. Hello, Sarah. I'll just explain to our listeners why we're doing it like this. So James is on the editorial team for our weekly socialist paper and we've had major features in the last two issues on the coronavirus. Yes, we have. And the material has been really well received, hasn't it? Yeah. And like everything in The Socialist, it looks at the coronavirus from the point of view of the working class with Mm -hmm. health and education workers, people trying to get tested for the virus and so on, writing for the paper. It's really unique material. Yes. But also it puts forward a programme around which the working class can unite and fight in this situation. So you've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this issue. That's right, I've been the editor in charge of both of those features. So this is why you've got me on. Brilliant. Okay, well let's get cracking. I've got some of the questions that we've encountered on the issue and questions that are raised by the virus that I'm going to put to you. Mm -hmm. So, isn't the new coronavirus, COVID-19, just an unavoidable natural disaster? Why do socialists, the socialist paper, treat this like a political question? Well, there are three reasons why this is a political question, I think. The first is that, yes, of course, the virus comes from nature, but the inability to properly control the spread and deal with the consequences, this is absolutely a question of how society is organised. So even from the question of, let's start with a vaccine. We don't have one. We've got a kind of vaccine for the flu virus, which means that the most vulnerable in society, the elderly, those with respiratory conditions, can get this over winter and can therefore, in general, try to avoid getting pneumonia, which is one of the worst effects of COVID-19, which is what is generally responsible for the deaths that we have seen. We don't have a vaccine for this one because after the last coronavirus crisis, the last major international one, there have been a couple, there's been SARS, there's been MERS, Mm -hmm. but after SARS in 2003... The private pharmaceutical companies said, well, that's it. The crisis is over. There's no immediate route for us to make profit out of this. And as a result, they haven't put any resources, any serious resources into researching it. There's the question of hospital construction. Mm. In this country, it's still mostly done on the basis of private profit through what's called the private finance initiative. And it's extraordinarily inefficient. There's the question of general infrastructure to deal with all this social fallout which we're generating. So this is a question of how society is organised. Secondly, it exposes both these shortcomings and how society is presently organised 
and the inequalities in every sphere Absolutely. of human life under yeah. capitalism. Absolutely. In fact, the crisis is so thoroughgoing mm. in society that we simply won't be able to address every aspect in this podcast. So mm. it is very important for listeners to read that material, which we produced in the Socialist newspaper and on the Socialist Party's website, socialistparty.org.uk, and will continue to produce mm. throughout this crisis. We had six pages in the last issue. Mm. We had four pages in the issue before that. There is nothing else like it anywhere on the left or in the workers' movement. And it's not because we're scaremongering. No. It's because we are looking at the unvarnished truth and trying to say to the Labour movement, how can we best respond to this? How can we work our way out of this? Mm. Because the dilemma for the capitalists, for people like Boris Johnson and the big business interests which he represents, Mm. is that they're having to balance between the imperative to make a profit Mm. and the threats which the public health crisis could present to their rule and also, by the way, to profit itself because all of the measures which can contain the virus also have the effect of slowing down the economy, of reducing the amount of profit the capitalists can make, either by throwing public resources at something and that money has to come from somewhere or by even measures like lockdowns, shutdowns of production. These prevent the profits from being made in factories because you can't make the products, you can't sell them. The global market is getting all sorts of interruptions to it as a result of quarantines. So they're stuck between two impossible to reconcile imperatives there. The organisations of the workers' movement Mm. don't have to answer to the profit imperative. They only have the social interests of the working class and actually by extension, therefore, wider society. Who do you mean by the organisations of the working class? I mean, in particular, the trade unions. Mm. Those are the basic defence organisations of the working class Mm. based on the workplaces. So they've got six million members in Britain. More than six million members in Britain. That's absolutely right. So they're the largest voluntary organisations in civil society And they're up to a point democratic as well. We campaign for them to be more democratic. But they have enormous authority, a big profile, great resources. And they could shut down production themselves if they wanted to. And we'll come on to that actually a little bit later in the podcast. But this indicates that the market is incapable of responding to the real needs, actually, of humanity itself in this situation. And in as much as there has been any kind of effective response in any capitalist country, it's come from the state. Mm. It's central coordination with the individual imperative to make profit, at least taken out of the question in that sense. So this demonstrates the superiority of Mm. the state to the market, of the public sector to the private sector. And this is the capitalist state. So it's a machinery composed of institutions designed and led by representatives of the capitalist class of big business, and which will use force, even in extreme circumstances, to defend the interests of the profit system, to maintain the profit system. We fight for a workers' state, which is not based on a privately owned, competing capitalist economy, but rather on public ownership and democratic planning of all the big resources, the big corporations, the banks and so on, which dominate the economy today, but also on replacing all those unelected, unaccountable administrative machines which form the current capitalist state, replacing them with new institutions democratically founded institutions based on the working class and the mass of the population to administer society instead. I mean, there are problems for jobs, homes, for services, for access to basic goods coming up, the disruption of industry, as I've mentioned, mismanagement of the crisis by the capitalist politicians, and just a little illustrative point on the class divide. You've seen a mini-boom in the chartering of private jets to escape to crisis bunkers and the extremely rich are sequestering themselves 
out of the way of the unwashed masses in order to escape this crisis, wait for it to blow over with their stockpiles. The third reason that this is a political question is that as a result of all of this, it raises questions about, well, who should control society? Mm. This is now firmly on the agenda. Mm. In many workplaces, it's only the workers' organisations, it's only the trade unions who are taking this seriously. Mm. We had in the first issue of our newspaper, which particularly covered the crisis as it was coming to Britain, a couple of weeks ago, we had a series of demands put by trade unionists in a sixth form college, mm. so 17 to 18 year old students, on their management saying, look, there are no hygiene facilities, there are no plans for what if staff are off sick, there are no instructions if someone gets the coronavirus in our college. Mm. Why haven't you come up with this stuff? Mm. It was even saying we want to work with management on this, mm. but you are not taking this seriously. It is only the workers themselves who are doing so. Mm. And if you move out of that into the private sector, it's even more severe. Mm. So there's that question. Mm. But it, it's all spheres, as I've said. Who decides how emergency relief resources are distributed locally? Mm. Who decides when, where and how quarantines and lockdowns operate? Mm. Who decides these questions? I mean, following the historic turning point of the 2007-2008 financial crash and a decade of austerity in many economies, this pandemic once again throws the stewardship of the capitalists over world society into question. We say the answer to that is workers' action immediately to fight for what's needed in this crisis, absolutely, but also ultimately to replace capitalist rule with democratic working class control of society, i.e. with socialism. But even resolving this immediate crisis in the best possible way does require workers to fight. Absolutely. Okay, thanks, James. You've set out a whole load of things that we can try and explore, but a couple of other questions first. So, Boris Johnson, Mm -hmm. new Prime Minister, he's talked about the NHS and the general election, and now he's come, you know, forward very confident, saying Britain's NHS is prepared to deal with this epidemic. Is that true? No. Oh. Now, I should start by making clear, I'm not a medical professional, you're not a medical professional, we're not public health experts, we're political organisers in the labour movement, Mm -hmm. but this is not a simple medical question, as we've just discussed. It's about infrastructure, services, about how society organises to respond. So the first point we should make is that people in Britain simply don't know the true scale of infection right now. The government has said to us, only rely on trusted sources, don't go with all the fake news. Okay, yes, we don't want scaremongering, we don't want sensationalism, but... It's a list of trusted sources. It cites itself as one of those sources. Who trusts the government? Who trusts this cavalier anti-worker administration to do what is in the interest of the majority of the population right now? As we're recording this on Thursday, the 12th of March, 2020, official government figures right now give 456 confirmed cases across the United Kingdom. The majority of those are in England, and in turn, the biggest number of those is in London, where we are now. But the testing has been totally insufficient. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, a couple of members of the Socialist Party in London recently returned from a holiday in Rome. Now, that's in the middle of Italy, not in the north where the worst of the outbreak was. Mm. But they developed flu symptoms when they came back home. They called 111, which is the non-emergency NHS helpline. There weren't enough medical staff. Normally, it's nurses and people like that who staff it. But it's such a crisis, they put on extra staff. Okay, fine, these Mm. staff are reading from a script. Okay, it is what it is, but they were told not to worry, just carry on, go about your normal business because you haven't come from what we've decided from above is one of the hotspot areas. But then abruptly, a few days later, the advice changes. And in fact, 
they hadn't gone back in time and visited the place at no. a different time, but then suddenly, oh, they were meant to self-isolate. So they had to go to a testing pod in a hospital car park, getting very unfriendly looks, by the way, from frightened hospital visitors. They got contradictory advice on the timescale for self-isolation. They'd been waiting days for the result mm. of the test. Now, thank goodness they took precautions to isolate themselves even before the advice changed, or they could have been passing that on to vulnerable people. If they have it, yeah. Exactly. Now, the Socialist Party bases itself on workers, so we do have doctors, nurses, health professionals, but also hospital porters, cleaners, mm -hmm. kitchen staff, and patients, of course. Mm -hmm. People like these are in our ranks, and they are experts. Mm -hmm. They are on the ground. They talk to us. They write for our paper, and they can give us the honest-to-God truth about the real situation. We can compare that mm -hmm. with the official pronouncements. So the truth is that we simply don't have enough beds. Mm. The Tories have cut them massively as well, haven't they, during austerity? That's absolutely right. We probably didn't have enough to begin with, mm. but that's gone down even further. Mm -hmm. I mean, Germany, for example, which does not have a model healthcare system, has four times as many intensive care beds per head of population than we do. Uh, England has something like 3,700 critical care beds. At the end of February, 80% of those were already occupied. That's before an epidemic. Mm. There is not a lot of spare capacity. Mm. We had one hospital worker who's in a hospital which is taking suspected COVID-19 patients explain to us that in her accident and emergency department, there were 20 bays. Six of those were resuscitation bays. And already, patients in their A&E are waiting well over the four hours. Mm. This is in normal circumstances before the epidemic. Recently, the hospital went beyond black alert Black alert is where the crisis in the hospital is so severe, it's so over capacity, that they cannot guarantee comprehensive medical provision, that they have to start turning people away because they cannot treat them. This is without an epidemic. Mm. They're being provided with personal protective equipment, with PPE. It doesn't make up for the lack of beds. Mm. You know, you've got a winter crisis in the NHS at the best of times with an extra strain on capacity. So the government is trying to contain the epidemic such that the peak hits in the spring or the summer. Now, OK, that makes sense, but there's already patients in the corridors. They're treating people in the corridors with symptoms which are consistent with coronavirus. Most of them probably it's not. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. But you see the problem. It's underfunded, it's understaffed, it's been so for years and years and years. There's a proposal to call up retirees, mm. retired nurses and doctors, but the Guardian got in touch with 120 of them. The majority said, I'm not going back. Yeah, I'm already yeah. in the high-risk zone because I'm yeah, old. Yeah. But it's the question of the working conditions. One said, and I quote, I would rather shove a rusty six-inch nail up my backside <laughs> than return to the NHS. So this is not just a problem. I'm not having a go at the workers who don't want no, to go no, back. That's no. completely understandable. Yeah, yeah. But this question of resources, it's not just for the minority who will need hospitalisation from the coronavirus, because most people won't need hospitalisation. Mm. But people who suffer serious illness or injury unrelated to this, mm. during the epidemic, where are they to go? NHS workers are extremely hardworking and self-sacrificing, so they and others will no doubt be doing superhuman things. They already do on a weekly basis, mm. but they're going to put it out of the bag to get us through this crisis as best they can. But they've been put at a severe disadvantage to begin with. Mm. That's right. And it's not just the NHS, is it? It's other public services, because we've had, I think, the government in the early earlier stages talking about increasing class sizes in schools where there's teacher absences for example mm -hmm. and also I mean we've had the promise of the end of austerity but councils are on their knees and have been for a whole period haven't mm -hmm. they what about you know where councils are, are meant to bear the brunt of serious public health crises these are these are more issues aren't they for working class people they are and we'll actually come on in a moment to talk about the new chapter of the exchequer Rishi mm -hmm. Sunak's 
emergency funding proposals which simply don't go far enough. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, the extra funding is welcome. Mm. But to start with this point about class size proposals, when the government came out and said, look, we'll just increase the class sizes if teachers are off, this had nothing to do with health. Mm. This was simply about cuts. Mm. Schools are not simple child-minding facilities. And if the government was serious about young people's health, it would, for a start, have broadened the curriculum mm. beyond the extremely restrictive subjects which make up the curriculum today to mm. give people more of an opportunity to expand themselves. It would have scrapped the high-pressure exam factory system, which is forced on the schools, to help manage the epidemic which is already affecting young people, which is the epidemic of mental illness. But they would also be giving clearer information to schools at the moment, because schools are kept in the dark. The officials will say to the school, oh, look, so there's been a coronavirus case at your school. The school won't know who it is. The school will be told not to close. The school won't have any serious advice on how to cope with the situation. And understandably, staff are going to be saying, well, do you know what? Isn't it better that we shut the school down now to try and contain this? But there is no serious approach to this question. And clearly, larger class sizes would actually worsen the spread of the virus. That's an obvious point. What we're demanding is extra funding for supply teachers to cover absences while the schools are open, but also funding to compensate staff and parents in full for loss of wages and so on, if temporary closures of schools do become necessary. Mm-hmm. Councils, you've raised. Now, already, yeah, they're operating skeleton services. Mm-hmm. That's the truth of it, because they haven't fought for the resources they need during mm-hmm. the past period from central government. One of the macabre questions, which came up very early on, was will they even have enough spaces in their morgues to cover the academic? Yeah. Now, that's not a question of normal capacity, but you do need to provide the resources for it. But what about... Little things like public toilets. Yeah. Those have closed. They have. Closed over, actually, even before austerity. Councils were slowly closing them down. What public toilets are left are in a parlour state, extremely unhygienic. You often have to go into the cafe or whatever. Yeah. Weather spoons. Yeah. Exactly so. And they're also operating with very low-paid staff, very overworked, don't have a lot of time to maintain the lavatories. These are going to become potentially hotspots in an epidemic. What about the question of overcrowding in housing? Mm-hmm. So you've got 25,000 rough sleepers in Britain. How are they going to self-isolate if they're on the streets or in tent cities? I mean, in England alone, there are 216,000 empty homes because of the madness of the housing market. Mm. We say that council should requisition those empty homes and fill those empty homes with people who are currently on the streets. And by the way, when this crisis passes, not give them back so that we can start to resolve the housing crisis as well. But then there are people, the hidden homeless, Mm. people who are crammed into one or two bedroom flats, Mm. whole families in these Mm. extremely on top of each other situations. Again, this is only going to help the virus spread. We see now it's spread in the confined conditions of a cruise ship, Mm. where you've got these kind of mini cruise ships without any of the luxury or swimming pools in every impoverished borough in Britain. So we also need to resolve the housing crisis for that reason. This is not simply, uh, let's look at this as a pie in the sky, future demand. This is an immediate question, not just for the immediate social crisis, but also for public health. Mm. All of these questions are, what about care workers? Council care workers who have to go and visit elderly and vulnerable people in their homes, are they going to be given sufficient personal protective equipment? Mm. Are they going to be given extra time to carry out hygiene duties? Mm. Are there going to be additional staff hired as needed to fill the gaps? Mm. Council should have been fighting on questions in these areas already. These are pre-existing social crises. So the question of no cuts of budgets comes in now. The Socialist Party has been saying it for a decade. Regular listeners to our podcast will have heard us talk about no-cuts budgets, about using council reserves and borrowing powers to 
implement the services which are necessary now and then demand from central government that you give it back. Mobilise the trade unions, get the money back. It's possible. It can be done. It's an immediate question now. If destitution and early death from austerity was not a sufficient emergency for councils to carry out that strategy 10 years ago, surely a pandemic qualifies. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And if it was done in Liverpool, it can be done now. Absolutely. In the 80s in Liverpool. In the 80s in Liverpool, <laughs> that's right. Led by predecessor of the Socialist Party. So you mentioned we've got a new Chancellor and he's done his first budget, something like 27 days into the job, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. Mm -hmm. And he grinned all the way through it, didn't he? Because he was able to get up and instead of um, some of the previous budgets, he was able to promise 30 billion in emergency funding for the coronavirus. That sounds like a massive amount of money. Mm. Is that enough? Well, actually, let's just examine that figure of 30 billion. It's actually 12 billion for the coronavirus. Oh. It's 30 billion. It's probably my fault for giving you a bum steer there. <laughs> but we've done some further looking into it. Yeah. It's 30 billion in additional funding overall in the budget. Only 12 billion of that, only, you know, a little under half of that is for the coronavirus crisis. Now, still 12 billion pounds. <laughs> That's billions of pounds. That's a lot of money. We don't want to turn that money down. Of course, we want that money. But for reference... The total UK government budget has recently tended to be about £850 billion a year, even under austerity. So £12 billion is 1% or 2% of the total budget. Now, for one individual issue, OK, that might seem like a knot, but for a crisis of this scale, it simply isn't sufficient. I mean, in fact, on pre-crash trends, this budget should have been 200 to £400 billion bigger than it is, even without additional funding mm -hmm. for coronavirus and so-called levelling up. So this £30 billion, well, really, it should be £430 billion mm -hmm. and the rest. Mm -hmm. However, what it does show, the fact that they have increased the budget by £30 billion this year, it does show that there is money there. That's right. And that under pressure, the government will produce it. We've got to fight for it, though. That is the question, yes. We have to fight for it. And the first thing, which I think a lot of working class people will be asking is, look, if they can find the money now, why couldn't they find it 10 years ago? This absolutely exposes austerity for the con that it was. Yeah. It was never about so-called balancing the books. Mm -hmm. What it was was an historic further transfer of wealth mm -hmm. from the working classes who are already exploited under capitalism, who already run all the services, produce all the goods, mm -hmm. and don't see the majority of the benefit of it. Most of that goes to the capitalists. But an even further transfer of wealth away from workers and from the poor in society to the super rich and to the bosses. That's all that austerity was. We are the sixth richest economy on the planet. Mm -hmm. We can produce far more than this yeah. very, very quickly. And in fact, other capitalist economies have gone further than we have. And we'll come on to that mm -hmm. later on. The next question, seeing as they are producing a little bit of the money, is how is this going to be structured? How is it going to be administered? Mm -hmm. Because in health, for example, how much is going to be absorbed into profits by privateers like Richard Branson? Mm -hmm. If they're producing emergency additional services at short notice, is this going to be on the basis of the state provides these services, or are you going to go searching about trying to find profiteers to do it for you, which would be the Tories' preferred option? Mm -hmm. Even if there isn't an additional profiteering going on, the system is already riddled with private suppliers who are creaming off money out of this. So not all of it is going to end up where it's needed. Jeremy Hunt, who is a former Tory health secretary, a notorious one, as most of them are. A millionaire. A millionaire who's written a book about how most effectively to privatise the NHS even, this hypocrite has said 
The NHS has centralised structures, bureaucracy that it's sometimes criticised for, but it does mean it can react in a very coordinated and integrated way in a crisis like this. Yeah. So why were you trying to move us to the American model, exactly. Jeremy? Yeah, exactly. Now, look, all of this is true, but the fact that it's centralised, this isn't the end of the story. The yeah. whole thing is massively complicated by being overworking capacity already, as, as we've discussed, yeah. without staff, without funds... The little money that's just being provided, it will certainly help, but it's not all going for the NHS, by the way. It's also for public services generally and to small businesses. Mm -hmm. But it can't make up the structural weaknesses which have developed over years and years and years. Mm -hmm. You can't train, hire and integrate thousands of doctors, nurses and other staff overnight. Mm -hmm. The government must commit that the decades of privatisation and cuts end here. That's what we're calling for. Mm -hmm. Reverse these policies now, reverse them permanently. As to facilities, you can't throw up hospitals overnight either, particularly on the basis of PFI. China has given us an alternative example, yeah. we'll talk about that later as well. But we say that private hospital facilities, where they exist, should be requisitioned yeah. to provide the extra space and capacity which we need, but also other private sector resources too. We've talked about unused homes. Yeah. Many of these are luxury homes, these are land banks by the very yeah, rich, yeah. but private land, unused private facilities of any type, those should be requisitioned by the state and not given back at the end. Yeah, yeah. Now, there is more money overall in this year's budget, but it's not long-term money. It's not long-term funding for the NHS and public services. It's not a transformation of the situation. Precisely. Yeah. And this is important for reducing social susceptibility to epidemics in future. Mm. That's part of it. But there's also, you know, the myriad other social problems we've talked about and managing the immediate situation. An effective response would involve giving confidence to workers mm. that the government is serious about creating decent and safe working conditions going forward, not just putting a finger in the dike. Mm. Now, so no more unpaid overtime, precisely. no more people having to do the shift without getting a chance to have a drink of water or go to the toilet or wash their hands, the things that people have been saying even before this epidemic. No, precisely so. And these are not simply economic questions. They stand on their own merits, by the way, That's as right. economic questions, as the standard of living of ordinary that's people, right. and we fight on that basis. But there are also epidemic questions now as well. Yeah. No, that's right. In Hong Kong, the doctors went out on strike. In Malta, the doctors threatened to go out on strike because they didn't like the government's response to the crisis. Now, mm. the precise demands that they put forward in each of those cases, maybe those would have benefited from wider labour movement discussion. There may not be perfect demands. That's up for debate. But industrial action may be necessary if the Tories' mismanagement degenerates further. For safety. Exactly so. That's a very difficult question for NHS workers. But in Northern Ireland, the nurses have been out on strike recently. In, what was it, 2016, the junior doctors were out on strike. The yep. British Medical Association led a strike. And health workers may start to ask themselves if the difficulties caused by industrial action, under the control of supervision of them themselves, you know, mm -hmm. the health professionals themselves are monitoring the situation while they're on strike, they might well start to ask themselves if that is in fact worse then allowing the Tories to foul the whole thing up and whether it's better to put some pressure on them at a certain point, as difficult as that question is. And the question of a vaccine, as we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. it could take 12 to 18 months to generate. We'd be a lot further down the line if Big Pharma had pressed ahead with research, mm -hmm. as I've mentioned. Profit stopped this. So publicly owned pharmaceuticals are the only way to resolve this. Mm. And also, by the way, to reduce costs to the NHS and to patients who are about to have their prescription charges hiked to £9.15 a pop in the middle of an epidemic. Yeah, incredible. But again, why wait for next time? Nationalise them now to force them to pull their resources and knowledge to expedite the creation of the vaccine. You can't control what you don't own, basically. You can't make more efficient what you don't have a say in how it's run. 
Okay, so that's the budget and the health service and so on. Now there's workers faced with an appalling choice if they start to feel they've got symptoms of the coronavirus. Mm. Because we've got millions of workers in Britain who don't have any rights at work, who are in the gig economy and so on, but also others who only get their sick pay kicking in on day four and so on, although the, the Tories have now conceded that they're going to make sick pay apply, statutory sick pay that is, apply from day one mm-hmm. instead of day four. But at the same time, employers are cutting sick pay. I think we saw that with Wilco uh, yeah. recently. And other workers are having to go on strike for sick pay, aren't they? And benefit claimants also, what happens to your universal credit? They're so quick to sanction people if they don't turn up. What's going to happen if people have got symptoms? They're self-isolating and so on. These are huge questions for people who are scared and worried who are already struggling to make it to the end of the month. So what's the programme of the Socialist Party for pay and income to be protected during this crisis? I suppose the headline demand is full pay. Yeah, why not? We know they have the resources. Yeah. But let's just start by looking again at this concession the Tory government has had to give on statutory sick pay, SSP. It shows the government can intervene and force employers to do what they don't want to do Mm -hmm. and pay their workers properly. Mm -hmm. Well, I say properly, let's look at what SSP actually is. It's Mm -hmm. £94.25 a week. It's not a lot. That's less than a third of a full-time minimum wage worker's Mm -hmm. money even. It's simply not enough. Now, your contract as an individual worker might entitle you to more sick pay than that. But as you said, Wilco has already started cutting sick pay entitlement. Now, the trade union there, the GMB, which is one of the main private sector unions, Wilco, for listeners who don't know, is a household hardware store. But the GMB is threatening to move towards industrial action, therefore. Now, that's the right response. Yeah, it is. I hope the trade union officials take that seriously and actually ballot the members and go for a big recruitment drive and call them out. Mm -hmm. But that's the right response because what we need is, yes, full pay. We also need no attendance disciplining. So we can't have people being worried that there's going to be repercussions because they've been off work. All normal attendance procedures and management discipline should be suspended during this period. And it's not just because workers can't afford the statutory sick pay rates. They can't. Mm -hmm. You can't pay rent on that basis. But because, therefore, you might have to go into work even if you're sick. And it becomes a public health question again. Now, the New York Times spoke recently to a hospital worker, a cleaner at a hospital in London. And he said, let's say I'm sick for one month now. How am I going to pay my rent The bills are there. How am I going to cope? And he was saying that he would have to come to work. There was no option. Yes, he might get sicker. Yes, there was the possibility that he might spread it. But there was the certainty that he would not be able to pay his rent otherwise. And so this is an absolutely crucial question. The workers who are employed at One London Hospital by ISS, which is an outsourcer, have struck. And they've won concessions on sick pay. So now they can work safely and they can self-isolate safely. And that's the way forward. But clearly the employers aren't granting it just off their own back. No. Even though, even though, never mind your bottom line, you are going to kill people. If you don't take these measures, you are going to kill people. However, the imperative to make profit rules all. And that is simply not brought into the equation. And the majority, of course, there are individual employers who have done it without further pressure. But the system as a whole is not doing it. It's going to take workers' pressure to do it. And let's have a look, for contrast, at Greg's, the bakery chain. Now, that's issuing full pay for the normal contracted hours to any staff who take sick or self-isolate during the epidemic. 
Now, what this shows, in fact, is the importance of trade union pressure mm. because Greg's is organised by BFAWU, that's the Bakers' Union, mm. who won from Greg's a recognition agreement so that staff negotiate collectively with the employer rather than on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Mm. And as part of that collective agreement, there are no zero-hour contracts at Greg's. Everyone has a minimum level of guaranteed hours. And they've got the union breathing down their necks mm. and they understand that, look, if we start to attack workers' wages, if we start to do things which the workers don't like, there's a threat that the mm -hmm. Bakers' Union, which is a, a militant union, is going to call our workers out or we won't be able to make a profit. All employers in this period need that pressure on them. Mm -hmm. If the firms say that they can't afford full pay, that's the next question. Okay, open the books. Mm -hmm. Let the workforce inspect it. Allow the trade unions to see where the money has gone. Mm -hmm. Because we might well find, by the way, that... You know, it's gone somewhere that the bosses don't want us to take it. It's gone into profits. It's gone into reserves. But actually, precisely. But actually, the money is there. Mm -hmm. Now, if they genuinely can't afford it, okay, that happens sometimes. Big firms and firms of particular importance should be nationalised to save mm -hmm. those jobs. Mm -hmm. Small firms should receive full subsidy from the state to support them, starting with whatever this £12 billion Sunak's promised, but going beyond that as needed. But then there's this question, if you nationalise the big businesses, is this going to be on a temporary basis that they did, for example, partly with the banks or that the Tories did with Rolls-Royce in the 70s, that you do it to rescue the company in order to prop up the capitalist economy and then you sell it off at a knockdown price to whoever wants to make profit out of it next? We don't support that. Of course, what would be we the point? <laughs> exactly, what would be the point? Well, the immediate point would be to save the jobs. Of course, yes. we support that measure. That's right but we don't want it to go back afterwards. And further, we think it should be put under the democratic control of the workers in that industry and the wider working class. That's an important part of the socialist programme. And then you could start to plan things, couldn't you, in a wider way? Exactly so. But to return to the question of pay, mm. what about self-employed workers? Yeah, good point. Some of them actually in bogus self-employment. When I say bogus self-employment, I mean really they're employees, but the company doesn't give them full rights. Mm. But some of them, okay, self-employed genuinely. Now, there's two million self-employed workers in Britain. They don't qualify for statutory sick pay. What about workers who are on very low hours? Because you have to be earning something like £90, £100 a week to even qualify for statutory sick pay. What if you're part-time? Does that just mean that you don't get the pay at all? Now, the government has promised it will make it, quote, easier to get benefits. <laughs> yeah. How? Yeah. You know, there's a five-week wait to get universal credit, this hated welfare system, now, some of that five-week wait is designed in mm. to punish benefit claimants because the government is trying to create this idea that it's your fault if the capitalist economy can't provide a decent, well-paid job for you, mm. even though you're not the one as a worker who's creating the work. It's the capitalists. It's mm -hmm. their fault. But they're trying to create that idea. Some of that is designed in, but some of it is simply because the whole system is under-resourced, understaffed. Mm. Again, how are you going to fix that overnight? Mm. That's a big problem there. By all means, put the money in. We're in favour of that. But they've created a massive problem for themselves there. Benefit claimants, we demand, should be relieved the responsibility to come and sign on. Absolutely. They should be relieved job searching activities. They should simply be paid their full benefits without any strings, without any further requirements for the entirety of this period. Yeah. And what about gig economy workers? People with variable hours, people on zero hour contracts. Now, our demand there is, well, they should be paid the equivalent of a full week's work, 37 and a half hours, and more if they can prove that they're paid more. The reason we've set a minimum threshold there in our demise is because we don't want stupid arguments with employers trying to rip people off and say, no, 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 you, you work too few hours. 
but they should also be paid more if they earn more. All of these questions require trade union pressure, actually, not just on the employers, but on the government itself. It would help if the Trade Union Congress, which represents almost all of the trade unions in Britain, is supposed to bring them all together, were to put these demands forward, saying, you know what, SSP is not enough. It's got to be full pay. It's got to be underwritten by the state for small business. It's got to be nationalisation if big business tries to wriggle out of it. But to put that demand forward and say, we are going to call our members out if you don't, strike action in this period actually could even be easier for a lot of workers. Because, yes, all right, in normal circumstances, you've got the anti-union laws. You're meant to give all this extra notice. You've got to jump through all these bureaucratic hoops. It takes weeks to be able to get a legal strike. What is the legal position on self-isolating? What if everyone decides that this is a health and safety issue and they are going to self-isolate? How do the anti-union laws apply to that? Mm. By the way, would the government even attempt to apply them in this circumstance? If you've got a crisis of this importance, if you have strike action on a serious scale, imagine the anger if they try to take Mm. action against those workers Mm. who are simply trying to defend public health and look after their already meagre incomes. It simply, I don't think, is viable. I don't think there's any real risk of it, but the union should be pushing for this kind of action. And whatever happens, it exposes who's capable of defending the working class and who is absolutely putting the interests of big business first. So Mm. whatever they're risking, they're exposing in everything they do the class nature of society and preparing workers to fight in their own interests, aren't they? 100%. Okay, we've got a few more questions because there's so many different aspects to this. So one of them is... In amongst all the news that we've been dealing with already, there's been the story of Flybe, mm-hmm. uh, which is Europe's largest regional airline, and that's been <laughs> dipping and diving and close to going under, but has now finally gone under due to the coronavirus. What is the solution to collapses there and similar firms? Well, the simple answer to that is nationalise. Okay. I mean, Flybe is very important to people who live in some of the remoter islands around Britain. It's also the largest regional airline in Northern Ireland. And there are hundreds of jobs tied up in this, not just directly at Flybe, but in the supply chain further down the line. It's about an integrated transport plan as well, isn't Mm. it? That, you know, why should a company be able to decide who moves around and who doesn't? That's about a plan for the economy, isn't it? It's about what we produce here, what we import, where people get to work, where work is, and all of those things, which obviously the government has left up to the market until now, and that's just not working, is it? It simply doesn't work, no. I mean, as another example, look at the capitalist European Union's rules on airline flight slots. So, in order to maintain market competition, which even the EU has to acknowledge in the case of a natural monopoly like the transport system, doesn't really work unless you unnaturally force it into it, They have a rule which says if you don't use at least 80% of your slots in a major flight path, that you will potentially lose that to a competitor. And as a result, for some weeks, this is mad. European airlines have been running empty flights, ghost flights, no passengers on them, at a loss, simply in order that they not lose their slots to a competitor. It's really lucky, isn't it, that those flights won't contribute at all to air pollution? Otherwise, it would be a real disaster, wouldn't it? No, no, exactly so. Now, the EU belatedly has said, OK, we recognise that this is a little bit silly. Only for the present situation, by the way, not generally silly. And they suspended that rule. But nonetheless, it indicates the problems that you get with the privatised 
transport system, and by the way, transport is something which we don't really have time to comment on in detail at the moment, but this is a major question in terms of vectors for the virus. What is going to happen to those transport workers? Of course, we argue for full pay, but there is going to have to be some transport throughout the country, at least of emergency relief workers, if we end up in an extreme scenario. What protective equipment, what deep cleaning of the transport system is going to go on before that? Exactly. Who has oversight of it? These are important questions, but Flybe should be nationalised, it should be part of an integrated transport system. And when I say nationalise, I don't mean pay people like Richard Branson or whichever consortium owns Flybe. They've already wrung as much profit as they can out of this unfortunately now failed private enterprise. They should not receive a penny when that firm is nationalised. Of course, small shareholders, pension funds... If they actually need compensation, if this was part of their retirement plan or whatever, they should receive compensation on the basis of proving their need. But the billionaires, the fat cats, they should not see a penny of compensation. And the same measures should be applied to any major firm which threatens to go under in this period and small firms should be subsidised. Now, we have been told on a regular basis that we're potentially in a process of Italianisation and Italy is in a state of crisis. Mm -hmm. The Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, has put the entire country on lockdown. But there's different situations in different parts of the world, isn't there? South Korea has pumped money into public hygiene and support packages. Mm -hmm. Like you've mentioned earlier, China built a whole new hospital in 10 days, which shows the world one thing that is possible to do. And then on the other hand, you've got Trump's initial response to the situation in the US in February was to say that the COVID-19 was a Democratic Party hoax. Now I think he's talking about the foreign virus. He shut Mm. down travel from the Schengen area. So that's the European that's Union right, countries, yeah. which doesn't include Britain and Ireland. Britain, exactly, yeah. So what lessons can we... Well, we can't deal with all of them, but what, <laughs> what are the main lessons that at this stage we can draw from the international responses to the coronavirus? Let's start with Italy. Like you say, the Italianisation of Britain. In a previous period, we talked about that with regards to the economy. Now yeah. we're talking about it with regards to the pandemic. And it had a similar ostrich head in the sand response to what we're seeing at the moment in Britain, I have to say. So it is possible that Italy is coming to Britain in short order. In the most recent issue of The Socialist, we have a couple of lines here from a teacher who's in Bologna in Italy. She spoke to the socialist and she said the children have already been at home for two weeks because the schools have been closed and they're saying they won't open again until the 3rd of April. I'm self-employed, so if I don't work, I don't get paid. That's six weeks without any money. How am I supposed to feed the kids? Mm. The government is doing nothing to help us, and the health service is on the verge of collapse. Now, we hope it doesn't get to quite that situation in Britain, but the seeds are there Mm. if there is not a sufficient response. Mm. So while public services are rationed or suspended in Italy, manufacturing workers in Italy have been told to come into work to keep making the products. So activity which directly produces a profit for the bosses must continue, but activities essential to life are kiboshed. It's incredible. Mm. But this is the logic of capitalism. Mm. However, what we can learn from Italy, I think, is not just the dangers of the situation in Britain, but the necessary response, at least on a small scale. So workers are responding in Italy. There have been strikes in the manufacturing sector in Italy. Mm. Workers in Britain can take a leaf from the Italian's book Mm -hmm. in that sense. Those workers are saying, why are you making us come in to make profits Mm -hmm. when you're risking spreading the virus? This is not what you should be prioritising. It should be the other way around. Now, to move on to South Korea, Mm -hmm. 
This indicates that capitalism has resources to respond. That's right. Look, it's far from perfect. There are many drawbacks to what's been done in South Korea, including the somewhat over-the-top invasive mm. distribution of private information about some of the patients. Mm -hmm. It could be more democratic as well, couldn't it? This is the major question, actually. But in terms of the resources which have been mobilised, mm. you know, they've guaranteed care packages, like you say. They've put loads of money to deep cleaning public transport. A lot of the workers are on full pay. Some of the workers in the private sector are on half pay. Everyone's getting the treatment for free, which is not always a given in the South Korean system, but they've labelled that on. And they've managed to contain it, as far as official figures seem to show for the moment, much more effectively than a lot of the European countries, Italy, France, Germany, Britain, and certainly than America, which has got a big thing coming soon. And it shows that that rapid central mobilisation of resources, that the money is there under capitalism and it can be done. And that's a lesson to draw from there. Looking at the United States, they could face an enormous crisis. I mean, we may be about to see the full horror, the full horror of the shortcomings of the US healthcare system. The capitalist system, really, isn't Exactly. It? That system, the healthcare system and the wider social system of capitalism, it's already a catastrophe mm -hmm. for workers in the United States. The US healthcare system is a byword for inequality mm -hmm. and lack of provision. It's scary. People are terrified of it. When Trump came and the US NHS deal was being talked about, it was a huge issue for workers in Britain. So this is the point, that the Tories wanted to use the post-Brexit trade deal to Americanise the NHS, to sell off more and more public resources to privateers, including in the United States, with their dreadful, ruinous healthcare model. Now, we should, by the way, just acknowledge that the EU also had regulations right. which enforced the privatisation of the NHS. So it, it's not the case that the EU would have prevented that process, mm. but the Tories wanted to give it an extra boost as part of the Brexit situation. That's a warning to us. Looking at China, it's almost the other way around. Again, it's not completely the other way around. Mm. There are all sorts of questions, again, particularly of democracy, mm -hmm. but it shows us the superiority of a coordinated central response to the competition in the market. You know, 10 days to throw up, it's not a full hospital, mm. right? But it's got emergency facilities, it's got these isolation chambers, it can operate to manage this crisis. 10 days they threw that up in. Notwithstanding the appalling conditions which a lot of workers in China have to endure, although I have to say that's true for a lot of workers in the democratic capitalist countries as well, particularly where the trade unions haven't organised a fight on their conditions, but it gives a glimpse of what is possible compared to the years and billions and billions and billions of pounds of overspend going into the pockets of the private profiteers on the basis of the private finance initiative, the PFI system in Britain. The other side, of course, is it shows us the enormous inefficiency of bureaucracy, of dictatorship, of lack of democracy in the system, whether it's based on the capitalist market or not. And by the way, China is in a distorted way based on the capitalist market these days. The early reporting and early measures to contain the virus were suppressed, discouraged in mm -hmm. China. Mm -hmm. There were even reprisals by the state against whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. But we should acknowledge this is something we've seen in the democratic capitalist countries as well. It is not unique to dictatorships mm -hmm. like China. For us, the solution to all of these questions, yes, is public ownership, yes, the superiority of the public sector to the private competition of the market, yes, centralised planning, but under democratic workers' control and management and at every level.
Mm. So not simply electing the top level, mm. but also local resources should be under the democratic control of workers. The Wuhan lockdown should have been under the democratic control of that city. Mm. You look at the panic which we've seen in Italy when the lockdown was announced. Thousands of people crowding into train stations, filling all the roads because a decree was leaked early. This was a shock diktat which mm. came from the capital. Mm. And the panic has obviously exacerbated the problems. Mm. So what's the way to avoid that? Okay, there needs to be a quarantine. But if ordinary people, if workers and residents in the local areas are put in charge democratically of how the resources are to be distributed, if they feel that they're in command of the situation locally, mm. that is the way to stop the panic. Combined, of course, with guaranteeing sufficient resources. And that's one of the ways that you could deal with the panic buying, which is understandable. People are scared. And there's photos going up of empty supermarket shelves and stuff like that. So I guess what you're saying there is the best way to manage that, isn't it? Not just leave it to the market. Well, this is it. So you've had a former Tesco supply chain director has been quite prominent a couple of weeks ago in the British press because you're saying, oh, no, no, don't worry. All the big private supermarkets, they've got what are called feed the nation contingency plans and they'll restrict the supply of goods to simple staples if necessary and they'll be in talks with all the suppliers and so on. And yet here we are and there's panic buying and the shelves are empty. Mm. So where is this stuff? Mm. Uh, Tory ministers have said, don't worry, the supermarkets are going to be fine. We're not going to run out. Actually, the reality is... They've never worked in a supermarket. No. Now, Scott Jones, who yeah. listeners will have heard doing the announcements on the podcast, yeah, yeah. who's along with me is a fellow editor of the Socialist newspaper. Before he came to work for the Socialist Party, he was a retail worker. He worked in Tesco, the supermarket chain in Wales, and he was a shop steward. He was a trade union rep there. And he talks about a time when the shop was snowed in. The snow was coming, this happens in Wales, you know. <laughs> this is what Wales is like. And there was panic buying and loads of locals came in and they cleared the shelves of milk and bread because they didn't want to be left without. Understandably. Yeah, that's an understandable response. But the shop workers were saying, well, look, the people who come in next aren't going to be able to get it at all. Yeah. So shouldn't we be limiting the number of goods in these key areas which people should buy mm -hmm to make sure that it's properly distributed in a fair way. Because often there'll be more vulnerable people potentially who are poorer or got less time who come in later as well, won't it? Not exactly. always, but yeah, sometimes. Yeah, which of course, as you say, is not to blame people who yeah. are trying to look after themselves in this crisis situation, but that's the reality of it. Now, Scott was a shop steward. He's a union rep. He went to management and said, look, here's a proposal from the shop floor. The workers think this is how we can manage the situation. And the manager came back and said, no, we can't do that because it's against the profit interests of the company. Pile it high and sell it off. But that's exactly, you know, from the horse's mouth. Yeah. That is the problem. Yeah, yeah. The supermarkets are ruled by profit. Ultimately, they're not particularly interested in the real effects on working class people, both their workers and their consumers. They're interested in making the maximum amount of money. And any considerations about protecting the supply chain, they're not about feeding the nation, they're about feeding their coffers. Mm. So there's always a distortion there. And even in my little local supermarket, it's been the big supermarkets out of town, the kind of big warehouse-sized supermarkets, which have seen the big panic buying, because people who can drive go there in their cars and they fill the boots. That's how you produce a stockpile. You know, that's <laughs> if you were going to make a stockpile, that's how you would do it. Yeah. On my estate in London, in North London, there's a little Tesco Metro, the sort of small versions, almost the size of a corner shop, really. And up until yesterday, the shelves were all full, because that's not where you go to stockpile. But yesterday, the toilet paper shelves were empty because even in the working class estates, people are starting to go, oh, hang on. Mm. We don't really trust the bosses. Mm. We don't really trust the government to fish us out of this. We mm. have to look after ourselves. Mm. 
Why not organise that collectively? Yeah. Why is it left to individuals to have to look after themselves in this situation? Clearly the shop workers who understand the supply chain in the distribution centres and in the outlets themselves the supermarkets, they're the ones who have the expertise to make sure that the supply is working properly. So Ausdor, which is the main shop workers union, along with the other shop workers unions in Britain, we say should call a conference mm-hmm. of shop workers, even if that's in the local areas. It doesn't have to be a national conference if we're worried about travelling during the mm-hmm. epidemic, but call conferences of the shop workers, trade unions in each of the local areas and invite representatives from the local community and elect a democratic committees to decide how that supply is going to be operated. It's only by taking this question of profit out of the question mm-hmm. that we can guarantee that is done properly. But then, you know, what about other emergency measures? We don't have time to go into this in full. We don't know what emergency measures are going to be implemented. Mm-hmm. Just, in France, for example, you've had the strikes against the attacks on pensions. We had a previous mm-hmm. podcast on that. You'll have heard me interviewing a French striker version. It's a very good podcast. You should listen to that one. <laughs> it is good. But what's happened is that President Macron has decided, look, enough is enough. I've got paralysis on the streets from the strikes. I've got paralysis in the French Parliament because lefts in the French Parliament are trying to filibuster my anti-working class pension reform bill and they're stopping it from passing with all these wrecking amendments which are clogging up the process. I've had enough. I'm just going to issue this attack on the pensions by decree, which is an anti-democratic measure which exists in France. And then immediately the government says, oh, and by the way, all demonstrations against this are banned because of the coronavirus. Mm. This was a couple of weeks ago when the situation wasn't so serious, actually. And it's not really about the coronavirus. They're doing that to prevent a backlash against the attack. However, coronavirus is a real issue. The Louvre Museum, for example, was shut down by workers concerned about its spread. So it may well be that workers in France temporarily say, "Okay, look, we accept this is an exceptional situation. We have to deal with this epidemic but they're not going to forget that their pensions have just been cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not going to forget about that. That's going to come back and bite Macron. Mm. You know, the question is, will he have got away with it? Will they be able to defeat him after this? Mm. That's the question. Are measures like this going to come in in Britain? Because everyone wants to see the epidemic contained. Mm. But workers are going to react very angrily if they feel the crisis has been used to rip them off, even if that means waiting until the immediate danger is passed to express that anger. Mm on other public services as well, outside local council control, what about policing? Mm. Because if police start to be off sick, the police are saying that they're going to stop responding to, quote, non-time critical crimes, that they'll focus, quote, on protection of life and property. Everything goes on that. But what does that mean? Mm. I mean, a lot of black people in Britain will question the police's commitment to protection of their lives Mm. at any time. Mm. And when they say protection of property, well, whose property? Does that mean my house? No, it doesn't. It means private property. It means big business, ultimately. So who decides how the police resources are used? This raises the need, in our view, for democratic community control of police policy, actually of police hiring as well. Mm -hmm. We've got a final question on what consequences could this crisis have for the economy in Britain and around the world and indeed for workers' struggle? Well, Monday just gone, as we are recording, Monday just gone was the 9th of March 2020. This has been dubbed Black Monday. The biggest one-day fall in share prices since before the start of the economic crisis even. It's the biggest in 30 years. The stock markets plummeted. Coronavirus is hitting the economy from both directions. So Mm. there's a supply shock as production shuts down. Especially China. Especially China. And of course, a supply shock to individual factories in turn impacts the whole international supply chain due to globalisation. But then there's a demand shock as well. As people go out less, there's less demand for services and goods. People lose money from wages, so that hits demand as well. Mm 
But at the same time, by the way, it's not just the coronavirus, there's also an oil production war going on between the OPEC block of oil producing countries and Russia, who are trying to decide who sets the price, who sets the supply levels, and so they're both producing loads and loads and loads, and this is driving the price down. There are trade wars going on, chiefly the US and China, but there are other trade wars happening across the planet. International cooperation is what's needed to deal with this epidemic, never mind on an economic basis, just on the level of services and, and medicine, and it's not happening. Why? Well, because... Because that is obvious, isn't it, in a situation like this? It seems obvious, doesn't it? But on the basis of a capitalist economy, that these tensions come from the impasse of the capitalist economy in general because it's built on the ownership by small groups or individual capitalists. It's built on competing private industries. It's built also on nation-states, right. on groups of capitalists, in particular national groupings, having more in common with each other than they do with competing nation-states in terms of capitalist competition to maximise profit. So, you know, there's an impasse in the capitalist economy in general. You know, the fact is that capitalists for this whole period have been unable to find new markets in the world to invest their profits to make suitably big returns on the extra capital which they have. Now, this is a perennial problem, by the way, for capitalism. It's got a particular set of new features now which we won't go into, but it's one of the fundamental contradictions of the capitalist economy that because it's driven by the need to constantly increase profit, because otherwise your competitors will outdo you and you're done, but it's doing that within a comparatively fixed pool of consumers and producers, i.e. the human population of the world. And because the capitalists are sucking the profits almost out of the system, new markets grow far more slowly than capitalist production grows. It will always run out of steam at a certain point and can only get back to moving forward again by destroying goods, by destroying productive powers, by laying people off, closing factories, ending services. And on that basis, there's space to expand again, to open up new markets. And that's what catastrophes like economic crashes are fundamentally. That's what Marx sees economic crashes as. Partially, wars can play this role sometimes as well for capitalism. What a brutal system. It is indeed. But a new crash in the world economy has been in preparation for some time. So the Socialist Party and our international organisation, the Committee for a Workers International, have warned about this, actually, for a, mm. a couple of years at least, really. There are massive levels of indebtedness across the world, of individual debt, of sovereign debt, the debt of nation-states, greater levels of debt even than before the last financial crisis of 2007, mm. 2008, and the debt question was a major factor in that. Nothing is guaranteed, by the way, due to the huge complexity of a system which is based on blind competition for profit, but the massive disruption of a pandemic, on top of all these other factors, this could tip the world into recession. And how are the bosses going to respond to this? How are governments going to sort this out? Uh, from what you've said so far, I think they might try to make the working class pay. They certainly tried that after the last recession, mm -hmm. and they succeeded, we have to say on balance, in the main of course, there were important concessions which were won by workers' struggle, by strikes. So workers will need to prepare for that. They don't have a toolkit no. on the basis of capitalism to resolve it any other way. The measures which they used last time, the monetary measures of pumping money into the economy, exactly, quantitative easing of lowering interest rates to allow private banks and private business to borrow. It's kind of been an economy on life support on a world scale. Mm. But they're all used up. They don't have any big capacity to actually do that any more than they're already doing it. And they're probably getting on worse together than they were at that point. The US-China trade wars, they're all at each other's throat, aren't they? That's right. 
The only tools which they have left are direct intervention in the economy, fiscal tools, which means spending, particularly direct spending on things like infrastructure, which Johnson was already promising because he could see what was coming down the line. It's already happening in some countries on a very small scale, but that's very costly to the capitalists. Mm -hmm. And it also once again proves, even in a partial way, the superiority of the state to the market. And by the way, this infrastructure spending, I'm sure we'll have something more to say on the budget in a future episode, mm -hmm. but it's simply on stuff which will take years to produce, you know, stuff which we want, we want infrastructure. What about public services? There's no more money for those, really. This is what is needed right now. Mm -hmm. Britain already has an exceptionally weak capitalist economy, yes, due to its debt, but also due to low productivity of labour, due to years of lack of investment in new technologies, and it's going to be hit very hard by a global downturn. Now, workers in Britain were stunned by the last recession. Mm. There was not an immediate response. There was an important fight back, by the way, particularly on the pensions in 2011, which was sold out mm. by the right-wing trade union leaders. But mass by and large... Action. Mass strike action, that's yeah. right. By and large... The response has not been on the scale which is necessary to defeat the attacks, which is why most of the attacks have gone through. But workers have been through a very hard school mm. since that time. Mm -hmm. And there are now big popular uprisings in many countries before the coronavirus epidemic, the pandemic. We talked about Hong Kong, you've mentioned Chile, you've got Lebanon, many other countries around the world. France. In the event of a renewed downturn, it's likely, I think, that more will come in one form or another. Having been stunned by the last downturn, many workers will say enough is enough. We're already fed up. We were already on the verge of this kind of movement. Look at China. There's fury at the bureaucracy there. Mm. Absolute fury at the mismanagement in the early stages of the coronavirus crisis, mm. at the victimisation mm. of doctors who were trying to protect mm -hmm. public health. You're even seeing on social media the repetition of lyrics from that Les Miserables song. You know, do you hear the people sing, sing the song of angry men? which was already current in the movements in Hong Kong. So China may have given Hong Kong the coronavirus, but Hong Kong might have given China some of its mood of revolt, actually. Mm -hmm. And we think that's a good thing. Workers across the planet will be watching the state intervene. And that includes in Britain, saying, oh, hang on. For the past decade, you've been saying, oh, there's nothing the state can do. The private sector's got to mop it all up. The state's got to be rolled back. As it turns out, you can do it. As it turns out, you can intervene. Now, it's likely the virus will have a certain dampening effect, I think, on struggle, at least immediately. Although strikes on immediate issues related to the virus are already happening, as we've heard. But any temporary suppression of struggle, that's only going to magnify the rebound effect when the crisis passes. And it's going to be given an extra oomph by the Tories and other capitalist governments proving that the state can intervene. And workers are going to start asking... Well, if you can do it to rescue profits during a medical catastrophe, why can't you do it to rescue my job, to rescue my home, to rescue my public services during the ongoing social catastrophe? The resources are there. We can fight for them. We must fight for them. But we cannot leave it to the competing profit interests of capitalists to be in command. We must link these fights together and argue for them to aim at putting the collaborative collective interests, represented by the working class who aren't in competition for private profit, at the head of society instead. So a complete transformation of society. Socialist democratic planning is what we'll fight for. Absolutely. Thank you very much, James. That's been really good <laughs> and full answers to our questions today. And obviously we don't know yet how far this crisis is going to go, but mm. what we do know is what's revealed, because what's revealed is the truth, isn't it? The truth of the situation, that capitalism is incapable of meeting our needs, whether that be the needs in a crisis or 
be that even just the needs of day-to-day life, it's incapable of doing that because of all the things that you've explained of the profit-driven nature of it. So that's what this podcast is about, isn't it? About Mm. preparing ourselves with an understanding of what that means and what the alternative could be. And that's what we want to discuss. So we want to hear from people, don't we, about what they think about what we've been raising today. Yes, so write into us. It's Socialism Podcast at socialistparty.org.uk, or you can write to the newspaper at editors at socialistparty.org.uk. Tell us what the real situation is on the ground. What's happening? What's the mood? What demands should we be putting forward? Brilliant. Okay. Thanks very much, James. Thanks everybody for listening. See you soon. See you, Sarah. <laughs> Socialism is a podcast of the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers International. This episode we heard from James Ivans speaking to Sarah Sachs-Eldridge and I'm Mary Finch. You can read more about the socialist response to COVID-19 at socialistparty.org.uk. You can see some of the material James and Sarah referred to in the episode notes in your podcast app or at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you agree with the action and the policies the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you. Join the struggle for a socialist fighting strategy in the trade union and labour movement. Join the Socialist Party now. You can give us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and you want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International at socialistworld.net. We want your questions, comments, updates on the coronavirus crisis, reports from picket lines and more. You can email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Subscribe so you don't miss out and recommend us to your co-workers and friends. And finally, Socialism the Podcast has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to financial support of ordinary working class and young people and we're proud of the political independence that gives us. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk. Till next time, solidarity.